Today's episode of Pro Se is brought to you by Case Fleet. What could be more important than knowing the facts of your case inside and out? That's where Case Fleet comes in. Case Fleet's revolutionary and easy-to-use software makes it easy to create a chronology of each case and to track the evidence for each fact. With an intuitive interface, full-text search, and built-in document review, Case Fleet makes fact management easy. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com law360 and get 10% off your first subscription. Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, everyone. Uh, I thought it would be good to maybe get a, uh, a vibe check a, uh, on the Pro Se team vaccine situation. This is no. obviously... This is a HIPAA violation. Uh, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> I'm out. Uh... It's only a violation <laughs> if we don't want to volunteer, and I, I always forget very... about that stuff. I'm very proud of my fully vaccinated status, so okay. ha- happy to say that. Yeah, I got the I got the jab at uh, Javits Center. Um, it was pretty dystopian, just people trudging through a convention center filled with like soldiers <laughs> giving needles to people. Um, loudspeaker coming over being like, we will beat this pandemic together. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, um, so Bill, you, you got the J&J, right? I sure did. The J&J at Javits. The old, the old one hitter quitter, uh, sure. the, the the one and done. I uh, I'm half vaxxed. I think I'm the only one on the team who's not fully vaxxed. I got the first dose of Pfizer uh, last Sunday, also at the Javits Center. Um, I had a different experience, kind of. It was um, I happened to go on Easter Sunday, which may have like slowed down the foot traffic a little bit, but it kind of. Um, it kind of just had the feel of like a high school graduation a little bit. <laughs> oh, uh, sure. All lined both, up and marching through. Yeah. And like a huge space. Anybody who's in New York knows about the Javits Center. And it's just like this sort of like, 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 you know, cavernous uh, uh, convention center. Uh, it was it was uh, it was good, though. I was in and out of there in like 20 minutes. It was great. You're graduating like from the pandemic. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Both in feel and in theme. Yes. It's also really interesting that I had Moderna, so we've covered all the major vaccine groups. Oh, this is wow. great. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've got one of each, really representative here. Um, <laughs> happy there's so many to choose from that we could all get the vaccination this fast. Good stuff. Um, yeah. Hopefully this means, guys, I get to see you in person soon. Yes. Um, we're, we're, we're all banking on that. Um, we have a really good show. We clearly put in the legwork to plan today's show. Bill is going to talk to us about a huge uh, copyright case, and I'm talking about a trade case. So clearly, uh, the, the legwork has been put in to, uh, to, uh, to prepare the show here. We're doing um, us today. Today yeah, we're, yeah, playing, we're <laughs> playing the hits. We're staying true to ourselves. We're doing us. Um, but yeah, we before- really we really are playing the hits because um, yeah. you guys are each covering your own beats, which will be yeah. good conversations. But I'm going to do a classic pro se move. And hey, guys, want to talk about some COVID lawsuits? Absolutely. Uh, Great. You know, we're, we're, yes. we're <laughs> we've been vaccinated, but it's still going on, of course. Uh, and um, there's always interesting legal news that that bubbles up. Uh, and so I think it's always good to check in intermittently what do we have this week yeah there's two that are interesting you know we're at a point in this pandemic where we we feel like we've seen it all with lawsuits but there's still bubbles and wrinkles coming up that are unique so 
The first one I want to go through is um, an owner of a Marriott hotel sued its insurance broker for malpractice because it didn't include enough communicable disease coverage in an insurance policy. This is a spin because, you know, we're used to seeing like a company... um, like a, a hotel or whatever, suing their insurance company, saying that some part of their policy should cover pandemic losses. Right. But here, it's a little different. They're suing specifically because they don't have this kind of coverage. So that's a new wrinkle. Yeah, it's it, it's it's a different sort of tactic. If you if you think you can't win quite on the whether or not you're covered, you can go you can sue your broker and say like, hey, why wasn't this more explicitly covered? Um, which yeah. is obviously and- uh, an interesting wrinkle. What you want to let you want to like. Uh, yeah, let me give you the facts more fully. Here. Yeah, yeah. So this one's um, there's a company called Provost Associates. They negotiated the insurance for a Marriott hotel in Spartanburg, South Carolina. The Marriott said that in its 2019 policy, which actually had a runtime of Mar- through March 2020, that there were they had robust communicable disease coverage. So when Provost went to renew the policy in April 2020, just after the pandemic had started, right. the communicable disease provision had a higher premium and about $1 million less in coverage for the year 2020. Hmm. So according to the Marriott, the insurance broker didn't tell them that. And when it presented the new policy, um, you know, left that out, even though they had been asked for the same coverage as the prior year. Hmm. So the hotel, of course, like all the hotels around the nation... They closed down during the pandemic because of state requirements, suffered a lot of losses, and it's blaming the broker for its inability to collect that $1 million that it was missing in coverage under the policy. Not a good uh, not a good situation for the hotel. One of those things where, you know, someone loses a lot of money and you're going to have people trying to figure out who is at fault for <laughs> right. losing all that money. Yeah, I think one thing that makes this suit kind of stand out is that the timing is really a little unusual here. The new policy was secured after the pandemic had begun. Yeah. It was still early days, but here's what um, the owner of the Marriott said. Provost's sales presentation did not include a disclosure that the Spartanburg Marriott was not covered for indemnity at least as good as that provided by the replaced policy. Provost knew that Spartansburg Marriott was suffering greatly from the COVID-19 pandemic and would need to use any related coverage. So basically they're saying like, not only did you, did you not disclose to us that we had less coverage than before when we thought we had the same, you should have known because the pandemic had already started in earnest at that point. Things were starting mm-hmm. to shut down. So this was a clear lapse, they, they argue. So we'll, we're, we're going to obviously be watching this case and see how it progresses. It does, I have to say, face a bit of a tough road ahead because over the past month, two insurance brokers have escaped suits against them over pandemic coverage. One happened in California. A federal judge there ruled that a broker didn't have a duty to warn a hair salon of unforeseen risks like the pandemic. Mm. And then in West Virginia, a judge said that another broker had not misrepresented a policy to a bridal shop there. So be, we'll see how I'd, this goes. I'd be interested to know if those cases have the the, the factual wrinkle that we see here that this started after yeah, the good pandemic started. You know, that certainly creates a bit more notice for this, um, you know, this broker to have provided some uh, insight that, uh, oh, that thing that's going on, you're not covered yeah. for that right now. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that, that's why this one's going to be really interesting to watch and see how that develops. Um, but I also wanted to turn to a second item in the, in the COVID roundup today, and yeah. that's student tuition. So 
This week, a California judge dismissed a class action brought by three law students. They were demanding that Santa Clara University reimburse tuition and fees after their classes had moved online because of the pandemic. The court um, didn't uh, agree to that. They basically said the law school never explicitly promised that you would have in-person classes. Yeah, we get to an interesting question here about what... What you're promised when you pay tuition, right? Uh, I mean, we all we've we, we've all been in the tuition uh, trenches and all of that. Um, what and this is obviously a unique wrinkle. Uh, what had the suit actually alleged in terms of um, there's there's obviously sort of a breach of trust or or like a yeah a, a covenant or whatever. Yeah, that's exactly right, Alex. So three students sued the university. They said that deciding to move everything virtual and stop in person classes was not. The problem in and of itself, it's that they refused to issue, the, issue them any refunds. Mm-hmm. Um, they said that that amounted to unfair competition, a breach of an implied, in fact, contract, and unjust enrichment. So the students basically say the the campus, the university advertised a certain type of campus life that, you know, through course materials, student bulletins, and even its website, everything obviously in those ways is depicted as in person. Okay. So when things went virtual, the students basically say they didn't get what they paid for. Look, I hearing this, I I think I have a lawsuit. Maybe the statute of limitations has expired against Fordham <laughs> University about the the food. The food was so bad, guys. Uh, it's not what I thought I was paying for. Uh, but okay, so I mean, what, what's the what's the upshot here? I mean, can you? I, I assume there's a limiting. You know, there's a limit to 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 which you can. I mean, you can't just, you know, pay for for Columbia and then have a, an entirely online school just whoopsie like. Right. Yeah, this was an interesting ruling. So Judge Lucy Coe issued it this Monday and she said that at most Santa Clara University made general promises. So they might have created some expectations that class would be in, would be in person. But it wasn't enough to find that the university breached an implied contract that has, you know, a higher bar to reach it than just a, a course catalog. Okay. So Judge Coe said the law students had agreed to also a bunch of terms and conditions as part of their registration process and that the university had explicitly said they wouldn't issue tuition refunds as a result of, quote, curtailed services resulting from strikes, acts of God, civil insurrection, riots, or threats <laughs> thereof, or other causes beyond the control of the university. So they have broad... The um, old explanation there <laughs> that there's a lot of stuff they won't give you your money the back old catch for. all the yeah, old exactly. the, the, the old acts of God. I mean, this is the this is this is this is defined so much of covid litigation force majeure <laughs> or like <laughs> whatever has. you want to call it. I mean, it's the same same. It's it's a different version of the same idea. Um, yeah, absolutely. Civil I've, insurrection. How about I mean, how about that? <laughs> they've really that's, ticked um, off everything that's happened <laughs> over the past. Yeah. You know, all the all the cultural plus. touchstones. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean. Judge Coe did leave the door open a little bit for some of the claims to be amended potentially, um, but it was certainly a blow to the students in this case. And there's other suits like this bubbling out there. So it's interesting to see how each of them are panning out. Um, it's sort of been a mixed bag about what yeah. we've seen so far. We're still waiting to see what happens in cases against um, some heavy hitter schools like Harvard and Dartmouth. But we've seen um, the regents of the University of California and Arizona Board of Regents, they got out of lawsuits against them for withholding a campus fee refund. And then George Washington University and NYU both dodged suits seeking tuition refunds for the same kind of thing that they'd gone completely virtual. 
Um, but on the flip side, we saw a Florida federal judge say that Lynn University had to face claims from students that were looking for a partial tuition and fee refund. And in early March, a New York federal judge said that Columbia and Pace University students had plausibly York, alleged yeah. that universities had breached a contract to provide access to a bunch of stuff. You know, campus facilities are included in your tuition dollars. Right. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of things about that and activities that they thought that they had paid for. So got a lot of threads of this bubbling up. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how different jurisdictions handle these suits. All right. Thanks, Amber. Uh, it's time now, I think, though, to turn to uh, the return of, I think, one of the foremost uh, intermittent pro se segments. It's time for Trade Law with A-Law. Trade Law with A-Law. Thank you. Uh, that's that's great. Um I wanted to uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, here here today on Trade Law with A Law. We're going to talk about uh, the national security tariffs that were imposed by former President Donald Trump three years ago, um, and there have been a lot of legal challenges that came in the wake of those tariffs, um, and they've begun. There is a growing sort of case law around these suits now, including um, a case that was just decided on Monday that I think clarifies uh, where the courts stand on uh, using tariffs this way. And it's basically um, that the that the president has, of course, wide latitude to impose trade restrictions based on national security concerns. But the courts are drawing sort of certain lines around them. So there's there there, there are some fascinating wrinkles to sort of uh, tease out here. So, Alex, I don't want to in any way, um, you know, say that I'm not following your beat, which can be very interesting. But, <laughs> oh, man, there have been so many tariffs. Lots I of tariffs. don't yep. know which ones you're talking about. Yeah, that's a good that, that, that's a good place to start just because there were the, the, the Trump era was kind of replete with tariffs. We are talking today about the 25 percent tariff on steel and a 10 percent tariff on aluminum that Trump put in place in 2018. And he did that using what was at the time a pretty obscure like Cold War era statute that allows the president to restrict trade based on national security concerns. The law, um, at the time Trump used it, it hadn't been used to like actually restrict trade in more than three decades. And it was seen as uh, a lot of critics kind of accused Trump of basically using national security as like a as like a veil for economic protectionism. He's just sort of saying that there are, there's a security threat to pursue an economic agenda and all of that. Um, but with Trump sort of deciding to crack open the old law book and decide to use this thing that hadn't been used in several decades. Um, Many lawsuits followed, uh, looking to basically strike down the tariffs on a number of grounds. Now, I will say, generally, those suits failed. Any lawsuit against, like, the first wave of tariffs that he put in place have mostly failed. He, uh, as I think is sort of generally understood... The executive branch gets a pretty wide berth from the from the judiciary on anything to do with national security. We saw this play out in the in the travel ban cases and any number of other contexts. Mm-hmm. 
And this law in particular um, gives the president very expansive power. Um, it's uh, the, 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 the law, by the way, is, is, is known as Section 232. Um, there was a suit that challenged the law itself as being unconstitutional. It was like uh, they said it was an unconstitutional delegation of congressional authority to the executive branch. Uh, that failed. There were a number of challenges to the tariffs themselves as violating uh, administrative law and constitutional due pro like uh, uh, due process allegations, all of those failed. Um, so that is sort of like the baseline of the of the of the of the litigation as it stands today. But but now, uh, you know, unlike Amber, I closely track all of your work. <laughs> Thank uh, you. So so far as I understand from reading some of this stuff, it seems like the, the, these cases generally fail, but in one way they sort of hemmed in the way that you can use these right yeah um and this is a very interesting dynamic uh in interesting to me anyway and certainly for trade attorneys um uh, uh across this sort of patchwork of cases that has been filed um the courts have sent a pretty clear message and that is while section 232 gives the president a lot of power to restrict trade it's not an infinite, indefinite authority. Um, there's a couple of decisions now, including the one we'll, uh, we will talk about momentarily, that basically say once you set the tariffs, once you put these restrictions in place, that's basically it. You can't decide to expand them or raise them months or even years down the road, citing the same security threat. Um, this all this all kind of bubbled up in the case we're, we're going to talk about right now. It was decided on Monday at the Court of International Trade. Um, and a thing to know here is that nearly two years after Trump put the initial round of tariffs in place, he expanded them to cover. Uh, uh, they initially just covered raw steel and aluminum. So like raw steel, like, you know, sheets of steel and all that. Um, he expanded them. Uh, to cover finished products like nails, fasteners, staples. Uh, so like they so it, they they apply to new products now. And the number of importers sued saying that that was a violation of section 232's deadlines. It has deadlines for action. And the easiest way to explain that is that um, under section 232, the Commerce Department has to conduct an investigation into whether certain imports are threatening national security. Um, it then issues those findings to the president. The president then has 105 days to decide whether to impose tariffs and how much and mm -hmm. all of that. Trump hit all of those marks when they were first put in place, this 25% and 10% levy on steel and aluminum. Um, but the court said that the move to expand them, again, this came like two years after they were first put in place. They said uh, you waited way too long to do that. That comes way too late and that this power doesn't exist in perpetuity. Um, they basically say if you want to expand these duties, you have to start the whole process over again. So you have to do a new Commerce Department investigation you have to you have to have new findings and then you issue new tariffs. You can't just sort of decree them uh, in perpetuity using an expired authority. So the court struck down these new tariffs that are on the nails and staples and things like that and ordered refunds to be paid to the importers. Um, the government is likely to appeal. Uh, should note that they, they basically said as much in their filings uh, when it became clear they were going to lose. Um, but it's a very interesting development uh, for the for the trade bar. Yeah, this is interesting because we've seen so many suits in trade and in other practice areas where 
Um, there aren't a ton of checks usually on yeah. executive power, especially when it comes to national security issues, you know, defending mm-hmm. the country. Yep. So this is really interesting that they've they've put a, a clear limit of once you've identified a threat and you did something about it, you can't just go back to that well again and again to make changes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, uh, I should say Monday is not the first time the government uh, lost on this point. There was a there was a case last year where the CIT also ordered refunds on tariffs um, against uh, steel uh, uh, from Turkey. Uh, several months after the tariffs uh, were installed, Trump doubled the tariff against Turkey from 25% to 50%. And it was the same kind of reasoning. The court said, um, you only have the authority at that time. If you want to raise something or do something new, you have to do something new. That case is before the federal circuit. Um, so... Uh, it, this is a, this is a little bit academic, I understand. Um, but that case and Monday's decision are by far like for all of the sort of hay that Trump made on doing trade policy and like mm-hmm. all these sweeping tariffs. This is by far the most successful legal challenge against that. Um, and it, it it should be noted that uh, the I'm 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 attributing these Trump the, these tariffs to Trump because he imposed them. But the Biden administration has not repealed them and is, in fact, sort of actively defending them in court now. Um, they could have changed course and they are not. Um, a lot of people don't think Biden will use this law as aggressively as Trump did. Um, but uh, as an academic exercise, the, the stakes are pretty high um, and the. Uh, Trade Bar is very eager to see the sort of what the appellate wing has to say about this. Like I say, it's pending before the federal circuit um, in in uh, in one case. And um, it will be it will be very interesting to see how they uh, how they come down. Again, this week's Pro Se is sponsored by Case Fleet. Experience a better way to build winning cases with CaseFleet's case management software. This software provides lawyers with tools for reviewing evidence, organizing facts, and identifying trends that would otherwise remain hidden. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com law360 and get 10% off your first subscription. For our main story this week, we are going to talk about the Supreme Court's ruling on Monday in Google v. Oracle. Finally. Man, I mean, it was... <laughs> it's so it's so thrilling to watch your friends maximize their professional sort of stature. You know, I I've Bill has been covering this case for longer than I've known him. Uh, and so <laughs> here true. and so here we finally got a decision. Uh, it's obviously a hugely watched case. Um, but what, uh, before we get into it in the details, it's obvious, it's a complex decision, lots of facets. Um, what do we need to know? Why was it such a big deal? Yeah, I think it's good to set the tone before we, you know, dive into the details because there are a lot of details. Um, and maybe also justify why you've spent so much of your career covering this case (laughs) because it was a big deal. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I, I don't think I need to tell anyone that Google and Oracle are two of the biggest technology companies in the world. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Google was facing about somewhere around $10 billion in possible damages if the court had sided with Oracle. And, you know, they were fighting over a very, you know, important fundamental issue for the software industry, which was the extent to which individual companies can control 
these very important little building block aspects of the way that the, that that software works and the way that software works together. Um, and both companies basically said, if you side with the other one, it's going to completely destroy the American tech industry. And um, <laughs> as you both alluded to, this case has been going on for about ten years. So it's uh, it's it is a um, you know it's big in in all regards. I was trying to explain this. I was on I went on um, our other show, the term yeah. earlier today to talk about it, and I was trying to explain to them. And you know, it's like. They're substantively complicated cases. They're technologically complicated cases. They're procedurally complicated cases. This is all three just sort hey, of jammed fun. together into one big, <laughs> and it's been going on for 10 years. So let's well, get into it. Not to uh, put you two on the spot with that setup that every every aspect of this is complicated, but I think we need the backstory. I mean, I know you can't condense 10 years of litigation into two minutes, but give us what you got. Sure you can. I mean, what... <laughs> What are you talking yeah, I mean, about? I this, guy's, this, this, guy's, this guy's been podcasting for like four years now. He knows. <laughs> he knows what's going on. Um, so Oracle sued back in uh, 2010. They sued Google. And they yep. claimed that, um, that Google had infringed their copyrights uh, by uh, copying, you know, when they built the Android smartphone platform, which is one of the biggest, you know, that right. and Apple are the two big ones. Um, uh, the, uh, Oracle claimed that Google copied something like 11,000 lines of code from Oracle's proprietary, um, uh, it's, they're called application programming interfaces. We'll call them APIs from here on out. Okay. Um, the lawsuit was filed shortly after Oracle bought up uh, Sun Microsystems, which is a name some people will probably remember. Um, they created the very popular Java software language in the 1990s. Now, Java itself is open source. It's free for everyone to use. It's just a language. But Oracle sells access to these proprietary APIs, which are pre-written chunks of Java code that make it easier to write many common functions and make it easier for everyone to sort of be working in the same framework when they work in Java. Mm -hmm. um, so when Google was designing a software platform for Android for this new thing that they were building in the 2000s, um, they created their own library of similar APIs for their platform, but they chose, crucially, to copy a small portion of Oracle's when they did so. And they did this to allow for software programmers who are fluent in Java to be able to sort of easily write in the new system and make their new system more compatible with Java and, you know, to, to enhance the interoperability of their system with sort of the existing, uh, you know, landscape that was out there, much of which was written in Java. Mm -hmm. Such a perfect storm of sort of contemporary IP litigation where you have this emergent technology that everybody's obviously racing to, 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 to get ahead of. There are certain sort of, uh, you know, building block elements to, to, to creating software this way. Um, and obviously, uh, th 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 there was a lot of contentious, that, contentious litigation that, that sprung from it. Let's let's talk. Let's get into like the the actual legal dispute that 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 bubbled up. Yeah, it's funny you put it that way. I mean, I I hadn't really thought about it, but I mean, this case started so long ago that it started right when all the patent stuff between Samsung and Apple was. That's what I thought of as well. Yeah. yeah, with all the um, so it was really just it was of a time when smartphones these you know they the, they now seem commonplace, but they were the big technology in 2010. Yeah. Um. But okay, so I, I think you know we can get into what both sides are arguing. But clearly, Oracle was arguing that these you know these little bits of code that that Google had taken that that was copyrighted, and Google wasn't allowed to take it. That's how copyrights work. Yeah, right. Um, so I think it's more interesting 
probably to talk about what Google thought, what Google argued for why they were allowed to do this. Because sure. we should say Google was just straight up. We like we took this. We we believe that we are allowed to take this. Um, yeah. Their first argument is more sweeping, more, you know, um, sort of black and white. They said these little bits of code that they copied from Oracle's API, they're called it's called declaring code. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so basic and foundational that it's not protected by copyright, that it's just not something that you're allowed to claim a copyright to. So why couldn't we reuse it? That's, you know, that's that's what we did and we're allowed to do it. Yep. Second, they argued that even if it was, um, that it was legal to copy it under um, copyright's uh, idea of fair use, which some people probably have heard of, the idea that it's sort of a safety valve of, you know, this is covered by copyright, but you're allowed to reuse it. Um, it comes up in terms of uh, parody and criticism, but Google said here that it also applied to these little bits of, of code that they took. Hmm. Um, they said that they had transformed it and used it in a new context and that that was enough to, to qualify as a fair use. But under either argument, the basic refrain from these two from from Google sort of remained the same, which is these are simple, basic instructions that everyone needs to use when they're writing software. Yep. And that the software industry has been doing this basic thing. They've been reusing what they call re-implementing API like this for decades. And that allowing one company to control this kind of code, Google said, would um, you know, it would it would hurt innovation, it would hurt uh, a word I mentioned before, interoperability, this idea of seamless sort of the way that everything works together now. And we all remember back in the, the 90s when stuff didn't all work together. Yes. Um, that this kind of thing would would hurt that if you allow one company to sort of set up their own walled garden around their own APIs. I will say, spoiler alert, Google lost on both of those arguments in a lower court of appeals um, which set up the trip to the high court and the ruling that we got on Monday. I've always liked, Bill, when we've talked about this one before, the analogy of how this could be viewed as like dance moves. Like, is this little <laughs> bit of API just one move that every choreographer should be able to use in their compositions? <laughs> or is this a, a broader thing that's specific to what Oracle created? Um, I, I like that tension there about how how big a chunk is this? How f- foundational yeah. is it really? Um, so obviously we're set up here for a, a, a blockbuster level Supreme Court ruling. What happened? Well, Monday morning, when I still had a little bit of uh, vaccine fog. Um, <laughs> Perfect timing. By a yes. uh, six to two vote, the court sided with Google. Uh, they overturned the lower courts and they cleared the company in um, billions in possible damages. Uh, now, the justices avoided the most sweeping possible outcome, which was to rule that the this code itself is either entitled to copyright protection or not entitled to copyright protection. Okay. Justice Stephen Breyer, who uh, wrote the majority opinion, he pointed to the way that the technology industry tends to be rapidly changing and that yeah. there had been sort of this evolution in how we looked at this and that, you know, coming down from on high from the Supreme Court and putting it, you know, you know, making a bright line rule would probably be more disruptive than they needed to be. Mm-hmm. So what he said and said was, we're going to skip that. We're not going to weigh on it at all. And we're just going to rule that Google made fair use of this code, regardless of whether it's, you know, we'll assume that it's copyrighted. They, they made a point to say that they weren't ruling on that, but they said, even if it is, Google made a fair use of this code. Breyer said that um, Google had taken, quote, only what was needed to allow users to put their accrued talents to work in a new and transformative program, end quote. Um, 
So in particular, the uh, the the justices said that you know that this type of software code they they you know they really sided with Google on each of the sort of big factors that you look at when you're looking at fair use. They said um, so this software code in particular is is really like tied up with the, the, just the basic uncopyrightable ideas of that that it's you know that it's dealing with the way yeah. that. You instruct a computer the way that you interact with a computer, um, and thus it's more necessary for people to be able to reuse it, which is a you know a vote in favor of fair use. He also said Google had transformed it by putting it in this new context and making their platform more useful on a smartphone versus a desktop. That they had only used a little bit of it relative to you know they had used eleven thousand lines of code, which sounds like a lot in a vacuum, but that out of the millions of, co- of lines yeah, of code yeah. that existed, they really only used a tiny bit that they needed to to do this. But one thing that really caught my eye and I think caught the eye of a lot of other people who are watching this, both for the impact on the tech industry, but also on copyright law and generally on American intellectual property law, was the way that Breyer, as he was analyzing this, looked at sort of the broader policy problems that might crop up if he sided with Oracle here. At one point, he described giving them control over this as uh, a kind of lock on innovation that yeah. would, you know, they would be the only ones who would have a key. This is a long quote, but bear with me. Given programmers' investment in learning the Sun Java API, to allow enforcement of Oracle's copyright here would risk harm to the public. He later continued. The result could well prove highly profitable to Oracle or other firms holding a copyright in computer interfaces, but those profits could well flow from creative improvements, new applications, and new uses developed by users who have learned to work with that interface. To that extent, the lock would interfere with, not further copyright's basic creativity objectives. So he's basically, I mean, it's, it's, he, he, he's really, you know, in a way that I think a lot of people who think maybe, you know, copyright or intellectual property goes too far in this country. Mm -hmm. He was really signaling that, that it's a, it's a two way street. It's a balance and the limits to it are just as important to think about. And the the problem of, you know, overprotecting it is very, very important to think about when you're analyzing questions relating to how it applies to, to, um, to software or to anything else. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that he full on set up that he thinks if this had gone the other way, it would have created a lot of turmoil in American innovation because that was one of the key arguments from both companies that they both made the argument that if they didn't win, it would create a huge problem. So he clearly took a, a firm stance on which side he thought was right with that. Yeah, I mean, for for a case that had been labeled the copyright lawsuit of the decade, um, uh it, they really did try to avoid too much damage. I think they were they were scared that if they yeah. weighed in too hard in any one way, um, they really would sort of upset uh, the status quo. That you know, for all the 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 you know all the talk of big tech these days, the American tech industry is a very you know successful thing in this country. And that's true. Yes. Um, but so Monday's ruling was actually pretty narrow in what it did. I mean, fair use is inherently sort of a factual thing rather than this sweeping idea of yeah. what could be copyrighted. And the court stressed uh, in its ruling that it was really only ruling on a subset of a subset of a subset of technology, right? Like it's not ruling on software copyrights. It's not ruling on API. It's just ruling on this one piece of API. Keeping so, it factual. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And they went out of their way to, on multiple occasions, distinguish this kind of code from software generally, which is still subject to copyright. The The more robust, you know, like a full computer program is still clearly yep. covered by, by copyright. Um, that said, the fair use ruling 
is a big win for Google and its allies. For it, it, it maintains the status quo in the software industry. It allows developers to more comfortably re-implement this stuff. As I mentioned before, that's the idea of writing basically their own programs, but borrowing these little basic aspects like declaring code in the same way that they always have. The, the doomsday yeah. scenario here was that that would change in some way and that that there would be lawsuits and, and huge liability and a chilling effect. And really, probably none of that is is going to come from from this ruling. Um, I think the most interesting and probably the most concrete upshot might be for just for copyright and for fair use generally beyond the context of software. Um, the court tried really hard to make this a software case that it's yeah. not a fair use case; it's a software case, and that they even included a line right near the end of the the ruling. Breyer did that. Um, that he wasn't overturning or even modifying previous rulings about <laughs> parodies or journalism, you know, the traditional things we think of as fair use. I took yeah. your I took your painting and I messed with it and now it's a new thing. Is that legal? That that kind of thing. Yep. He explicitly said we're not trying to change the way that we do that stuff. But they might have, uh, is the thing. I mean, it's you know, they 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 try to I hem swear this to God, stuff we're not doing this. Uh, <laughs> they try maybe. to hem this stuff in, and um, yeah. but there's no way to look at this in any any other way as uh, other than being it pretty broadly pro fair use. Um, in particular, it was a pretty expansive reading of what constitutes a a you know a so called transformative use, which is one of the key questions here. Yep. Um, it it really uh you know in in sort of big big thematic ways it embraced a, a more expansive technological approach to fair use you know the you know fair use is what allowed for google image search it what it's what allowed for uh google books um yep. all sorts of things where whole works are being used again for in a commercial setting but the context is so different that that it 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 counts as this new transformation that's an idea that hadn't really been embraced by the supreme court cuz they hadn't ruled on fair use in 25 years so that's a big deal just to have them sort of say that mhm and i think um you know even more importantly is that stuff i was talking about before about um about this idea of broader public harm and public benefits that come from enforcing copyrights and how that needs to get factored into this analysis you look at both of those things and, you know, they tried their hardest to make this a very sort of narrow ruling. But if I'm an attorney looking at that or I'm a judge looking at how to work with this new ruling onto how do I work that into the case law? I think there's a lot of new arguments for for someone who wants to, you know, someone who's been accused of using a copyrighted work and wants to say, hey, this is a fair use. There's a lot more, I think, wiggle room than there was last week. So, Bill, I have one final question for you about this case. Um, are you ready to spend the next 10 years of your journalism c career writing about how it's applied to other cases in the future? <laughs> oh, I, got, I think I got to maybe I got to get a new beat. I don't know. This was sort of wrapped <laughs> up in it. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, it was a big one. It's good to have it done. I mean, there's going to be more follow up, but um, it's sort of it does feel like an end of a chapter. So. That'll wrap us up for today. Thanks for bringing your um, respective expertise to your segments. It was really yes. good to talk about your own beats this week. 
That was good. Uh, it's uh, good to stay in your lane and uh, <laughs> create content out of it. It's great. Yeah, always, gotta, gotta share Always that happy to talk about copyright law, guys. Yes, like yes. <laughs> uh, well, thanks to both of you. And we also have a lot of other people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, and contributing reporters, Sean Rice and Hannah Alborazzi. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform so other people can find us. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about, head on over to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.